are listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Sohail Ahmad. Sohail is an ex-Muslim, ex-Ahmadi writer based in Canada, and you may know him by his social media alias, Reason on Faith. Sohail began his activism in 2016 because he saw need to address the modernist apologetics popularized by the Ahmadiyya sect of Islam, which we will be getting into in more detail later in this podcast. And Sohail has recently released his first video, Outing Himself. When did you release that? It was quite recently, right? Yes, it was uh, actually on May 4th, so just over a month ago. Mm, Okay. I just watched it today, but I became aware of it, I think, a few weeks ago, after years of activism and organizing behind the scenes, which I I was quite surprised you, you have been active for, I think you said, 20 years? Well, I I left Islam. uh, It's usually never one point, but I had started questioning and pretty much left uh, over two decades ago. But I just wasn't really in the activist scene. I was just living my life. Right, right. And so Hale is co-organizer of the Toronto chapter of the Ex-Muslims of North America and organizer for the Toronto chapter of Muslim-ish. And I'm going to put all of the links, everything that we refer to in this podcast, any works, any videos, any organizations that we refer to in the course of our conversation, you will find, as usual, in the show notes. And there will also be timestamps. So don't worry, all the information will be there available when the podcast comes out. And I would just alert you to the fact that we had Sarah Hader, who is the uh, head of the ex-Muslims of North America, or the founder, I think. Uh, was She's a co-founder and director. A co-founder and director. Was actually the first guest on this podcast. So episode two is uh, the episode where we interviewed Helen Pluckrose and I interviewed Sarah Hader. So if you want to find out more, she talks about the organization a little more there. Although we don't focus on leaving Islam in that podcast but here we're going to focus much more on that. So Hyle is coming to us from Toronto, and I am coming to you, as usual, from a rather cold and grey autumnal Buenos Aires. Welcome, So Hyle. Thank you for having me, Iona. So first of all, I, I think it might be useful to give people a brief primer on who the Ama- Amadi, I always want to pronounce it Amadi, I apologize. The Amadi Muslims are, and sure. what distinguishes them as a sect. So maybe you could just say a little, a little bit without getting into too much theological nitty gritty, what distinguishes them from, uh, from some other branches of Islam and why so many other Muslims consider 
Ahmadis to be heretics. In fact, in Pakistan, on your passport, you have to write, you have to say that you're a Qadiani. You're not allowed to call yourself a Muslim if you're Ahmadi. There is a lot of persecution of Ahmadis by other Muslim sects. So perhaps you could begin by giving people a little bit of insight into that, how this sect was founded and what the doctrinal differences are. Sure. Okay. Well, basically, in the late 1800s in um, British India, there was a lot of um, proselytization by Christian missionaries. A lot of Muslims were converting to Christianity. Uh, Islam was effectively under attack uh, ideologically. And uh, some Muslim leaders and thinkers were trying to defend Islam. Among them was the founder of Ahmadiyya Islam. And he was doing this for a few decades uh, before he actually made a claim in 1889 to be the long-awaited Muslim Mahdi, which is sort of like the guide, as well as uh, Jesus Christ of the, the latter days, which Muslims, in addition to Christians, have been waiting for. And so he said he's both of these personages, but it's a metaphorical second coming. And long story short, he said, Jesus has died a natural death. He wrote a book about it called Jesus in India, and he started a movement. And after he died, the community elected uh, successors known as uh, Khalifa um, or Khalif. Um, so the plural of that is Khulafa. So there's been many um, Khalifs after him, and, and the community's on their fifth uh, Khalifa of the movement, who now resides in London, England, because there's so much persecution in Pakistan. And what sets this movement apart is that although there have been modernist takes on Islam on certain doctrines over the, the centuries, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the founder of Ahmadiyya Islam, had synthesized a lot of it and, and packaged it up neatly and put a bow on it, gave it a name. And that's sort of its claim to fame. Among some of their beliefs that go against the mainstream, um, one of the main ones, which is what causes a lot of the uh, animus with other Muslims is that Ahmadis maintain that it's possible for a prophet to come after Muhammad as long as that prophet is subservient and is a follower of Muhammad and is not bringing a new law, a new book, a new religion. They're just reviving the faith. And they're a prophet in the sense that God talks to them um, and that's it. Other Muslims have for a long time, had a very strong belief and interpreted things in Islamic theology to say that Muhammad is the last prophet, period. They don't qualify it with like last law-giving prophet or anything like that. And so that's where a lot of tensions came in and a lot of mainstream Muslims, Sunni, Shia, what have you, would say, hey, you Amadi Muslims, you're not really Muslim, you're outside the pale of Islam. And so there became quite a segmentation. Amadis do their, they build their own mosques. They have their own community. They marry just among themselves. So it functions as a different religion, but Amadis would maintain that their version of Islam is actually the true Islam that had been lost over the centuries. And their movement came to revive the original Islam of Muhammad. Mm. I think Armin Navabi said to you um, rather rather astutely, that's what all reformers claim. Absolutely. That they're reviving the true original version. Well, actually not all. I don't think Majid Nawaz ever makes that claim. Right. Uh, other than the reformers, and Amadis don't 
see themselves as reformers, mm-hmm. but as revivers of something that it was originally needed no reform because it was perfect. Right. Of course. This, that's a very, it's a very, very common uh, stance. Yes. And I think that, let me see, I have so many questions for you. I'm wondering where to start. Maybe I'll start here. You talk about the fact that you admire parts of Islam in your video and that you have kept some of the values. And maybe before we talk about your journey into apostasy, you could tell tell me more about what values you feel that you learned from the community which you would like to uphold or which you feel are are particularly worth holding on to. Right. Um, so I'll, I'll preface that with what I believe I've said in my video in that part as well, that I don't claim that these things are unique to Islam or only came with Islam. I think there's a lot of great things that religions have co-opted that came before those religions themselves. But because in my own life, I've been introduced to them through religion, that's how I identify them. But I know, uh, you know, if we want to get really pedantic about it, they're not unique to Islam. So for example, Islam does place a lot of emphasis on hygiene, you know, rinsing your mouth after you eat, um, especially if you're not going to be able to brush right away, or you know, bathroom hygiene, using water. And there's a lot of apostates that I've talked to who are like, hey, once you use water to clean your behind, um, even after you leave Islam, that's, that's not something that you let go of because you appreciate the hygiene there. Um, I've also, for example, uh, that's never... a very Indian thing. So in India, it is. You have a little bucket of water or a, or a spray, and so you can you can rinse off. Right, and, and my friends from India who are Hindu, they would do the same thing. So these are not uniquely Islamic by any means. Mm-hmm. And you also said that you feel strongly about not drinking alcohol. In fact, I got quite an impression of not in any way authoritarian, you're anything but authoritarian, but of a quite conservative person when I was watching the video. You described adultery as vile. And uh, yes, you said that you wouldn't, of course, stop anybody else from drinking alcohol in your presence, whether they're Muslim or not Muslim. You have no desire to impose anything on anyone else, which is really laudable. So this is not a criticism. I'm just genuinely interested in sure. why you feel strongly about that. Right. So I I admit that a lot of things that we believe in or, or hold in our lives to be useful or true, they're going to come through the biases that we grew up with. That That will shape our thinking. And even in my questioning phase, when I had the opportunity to drink, I decided that for my own personality, it didn't make sense. And I also thought there's so many issues that alcohol can create. Obviously, there's pleasurable aspects too. Nobody's denying that. Those things are obvious. But I looked at all the other areas where it can cause uh, issues. You know, you, you see uh, drunk drivers, people lose loved ones. We're, we're, command, we're, we're in command of trains and planes and automobiles and more machinery, um, we have a, a greater capacity to do danger where having our our wits about us and being sober tends to be more important now than it did a few centuries ago before we had 
such tools that could be um, misused. Mm, mm. So um, I've looked at it from that perspective. I also see it, you know, show up in so many issues with domestic violence. And um, so I thought, you know, if I, I personally don't need it, um, why start? And, and I know that I myself have a bit of an addictive personality. If I'm studying, if I'm nervous, I'm going to grow, I'm going to go for that cup of tea over and over again, even though I know I shouldn't. Um, you, are the, enjoy- you are the spirit animal of Helen Pluckrose. Helen is going to be so happy to hear that. <laughs> I'm going to send her the snippets. <laughs> okay. And, and so if, if I used, if I had alcohol as an option, then I know that what I would probably, you know, there, there's a risk of me not being somebody who could balance it. And I think there's a lot of people who could um, potentially find themselves in that situation. Mm. And one of the precepts I used in life is, if it's something that I don't know necessarily that I'm missing, it's not like a human need, like mm, food, mm. shelter, companionship, I'm going to be a little bit more careful about selecting whether I want that in my life or not. Um, and I also think that people should actually make some conscious choices. And I think often in our in our culture, it's so assumed that when you're of age, you're going to drink. And I think people, you know, it's fine if they make that choice, but I think people deserve to give themselves an opportunity to actually reflect on it. Because once you know the taste, you like it. If you have some issues with it and dependency or addiction uh, or moderation, if those become issues, now you're kind of stuck. The genie's out of the bottle. Mm, mm. So I think people should be able to to give themselves some thought. And I'd like to to put in the culture um, the ability to, to think about those choices before we we can't look back. Mm. Um, go ahead. Oh, yes. I was going to say that um, I, I just, this is hitting home a little bit. I, I have found that being on keto has helped me with not drinking to excess because on keto, two glasses is my absolute hard limit. Mm. Um, and even after one glass, I'm a bit tipsy. You know, we're talking one glass of wine, which normally would would not have made me tipsy. And I have, I had mixed feelings about that, but I've decided it's actually rather a good thing. I do drink a glass of wine almost every single night, but since I've been doing keto, it's usually just one and very rarely two. And if I drink two, I really do feel a little drunk. So, and I have to confess that I usually podcast with a glass of Malbec, but in your honor i'm not i'm just okay well <laughs> i'm just drinking tea. I, i'm fine whatever make whatever you know i know you are but you. i feel yeah. i feel it would be a little disrespectful so oh not at all not at all and I, I i hope i didn't come across that way because that's not my intention no no my... no you are very thoughtful you don't come across as as someone dictatorial you're extremely thoughtful and actually that is one of the main things that struck me about the video and your approach. So I feel that there are different approaches to apostasy uh, or to promoting Mm. apostasy, let's say, that work for different people. And I have certainly found that some approaches that I myself thought might be incredibly harsh and that would just alienate people have resonated with many former believers. So right. I have 
heard a couple of people who've said this to me personally, and I've also seen many comments about it. People who used to be very devout in their first sort of, their first kind of inspiration or or um, prompt or kind of nudge to leave was reading something like Dawkins' right. The God Delusion or Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great. And those are both books which are, where the tone is really quite angry. They are, they really don't pull their punches at all. Right. But for some people who have been feeling a lot of doubts so that they're unable to voice that kind of very extremely frank and quite courageous. I mean, all forms of apostasy are are courageous in my opinion, but that very kind of ballsy way of writing just uh, felt liberating to them rather than insulting. But I think- I felt that way reading those hmm. years ago. Oh, how interesting. Myself. But your approach yeah. is completely the opposite so I would say someone like Ali Rizvi's approach is closer to yours than to Dawkins and Hitchens, but still right. Ali doesn't pull his punches. Right. We we need everybody across the spectrum because different approaches work on different. Right. People. Yours is the, just the most the gentlest approach I have seen so far. You're just extremely charitable, kind. It's yes, it's a very, very gentle taking people by the hand and just suggesting a path and being like, you can take this path or not. Just have a think about right. it. I did that on purpose. It, it was very intentional. And I think because that was my goal, a lot of what you see as, as sort of being conservative is sort of disproportionately emphasized in order to build a bridge oh, with my former ah, community. Okay, that makes right? that makes sense. I have a lot of views that um, would, you know, would probably, uh, and we can get into some of those, but I wanted to focus on how I can understand where they are and, and take them gently by the hand from where they are by emphasizing the things about me that are the same and things that they would recognize. Mm. Uh, mm. So that was the approach I took. And a lot of people create videos for, you know, hey, I want to be able to tell the world and other people will learn about Islam and from the perspective of an apostate. My goal was, even if I just have 500 views on the video and it's to other questioning or it's other questioning Amity Muslims especially, or just Amity Muslims in general who never even thought about questioning, and I can plant the idea in their, in their minds that there's something here worth looking at and investigating, that was good enough for me. And so the audience really isn't, the entire world or getting a lot of clicks and views and things like that. It was really um, my immediate circles because I know if I can influence people with in terms of quality over quantity, eventually those people will influence other people and, and the message will spread. Mm, I think you're reaching quite a lot of people, actually. I would be quite surprised if you don't become a viral sensation. I'm sort of hoping you do. Thank you. But yes, I can see that your audience is doubting, uh, doubting Muslims. Right. And I do think it's very helpful that also the way that you write and speak is, some, is uncooptable. And now I want to just make, be careful to make a distinction here because I think the fact that something someone says can be co-opted by anti-Muslim bigots or by racists or by the alt-right or far-right doesn't mean that person has said or done anything wrong. 
Correct. People can twist your words and they can, you know, cherry pick the bits of your work that they want to use for their purposes. You know, the devil can cite scripture for his purpose. Um, right. And that doesn't mean that your approach is wrong or that what you say is dishonest or that what you say is racist or anti-Muslim or bigoted or whatever else. I want to be just absolutely clear about that because I've had the experience of being co-opted myself. It's very uncomfortable, but it doesn't really change my mind on what I said. I just then disagree with what they did with it. But your work is very uncooptable, and that is extremely useful when you're facing that kind of accusation that this is fueled by racism or bigotry or whatever. I can point them to you, and you're a person for whom it is 100% crystal clear that it is not fueled by that. Right. And and that's on purpose. Um, It takes a lot more work, and I don't think we should have to do that, Mm. but I'm you know, I'd see so, so many of my fellow activists, their work getting co-opted and twisted and, and I was just sick of it. And so I thought maybe if I put some more work on the front end, which I shouldn't have to, because it, it's getting a bit ridiculous the way people are trying to twist words. But if I put words, if I put effort on the front end, maybe that will help me with sort of the downstream cleanup um, of people who are misusing and abusing and twisting words. Um, that may still be a problem so far. It really hasn't. I'm, you know, I, I still get, you know, accusations. Oh, you must be a bigot because of this. And I, I can just brush that off because I know I've put in the work to really emphasize that. But, um, I want us to get to a place where we can say things without having to be so politically vigilant all the time, Mm, uh, mm. because it is taxing. And I'd rather focus on the content than all of the political optics. Yes, absolutely. When you have to be careful about every sentence, because it could become a soundbite, I think it's very stultifying to discourse. You need to be able to explore topics freely, say what you think, correct yourself later, you know. Right. That is how you get to the truth of the matter, and not by being political and diplomatic about every single last statement. Right. You know, politicians are not known for being great thinkers for that reason. Yeah. That's why my writing's taken a lot of time because I've had to review and think, okay, if I was an apologist or somebody trying to attack me, even a bad faith actor, where might they find something that they could more easily twist and how do I make it harder? And that took a lot of extra time in my writing, but I feel like I've put out pieces that are that are going to be able to defend themselves long after I stop writing. And, and I wanted to put stuff out there that wasn't so transient and ephemeral, but things that could last the, the test of time and that people could go to in 10 years or even 20 years. So I... I may be asking these, I think I'm asking my questions slightly in the wrong order, or rather in the order that I wasn't planning. But I'm going to put this to you now, because it seems to follow on from what we're talking about here. I will plan to flag here that I want to talk about the unique role of the Amadis in the West in particular, and the anti-violent stuff. And I also want to talk about your own experiences as an apostate. And I want to talk about Dawa, or you don't call it Dawa, you call it Tablik, Tabik, or Tablik, Tablik. Yeah. yeah, but same thing, yeah. You know, in some ways, Amadea is the opposite of my religion of Zoroastrianism, which doesn't accept converts. 
Mm. We are not permitted to evangelize uh, for historical reasons, for mainly for historical reasons. But we will come back to that. What I want to address was that I often hear people saying, I think that Ina, who calls herself Nice Mangoes, who has the podcast Polite Conversations, is probably the person who has taken this stance the most strongly. And I feel she's taken it way too strongly. She's way too extreme in this. But she's not alone at all in this stance, which is she feels that it's time to stop critiquing Islam or to really pull back on critique of Islam because the far right is a much greater threat. And critiquing Islam is just providing ammunition for the far right. And I did have a, I I didn't have the same feeling, but I had a slightly similar feeling when I was in India, that I still feel there's a, there are many, many things that I would like to critique about Islam, and many forms of Islam and many ways in which Islam is practiced, not universally, but in many, many mm. cases, conservative, traditional Islam. But in India, Muslims are a minority, and I think genuinely an endangered minority, given the resurgence of Hindu ethno-nationalism at the moment. Right. And I really stopped. I used to talk about Islam quite a lot because I was a paid-up member of Quilliam. I grew up in Pakistan. I have an interest in this topic. And I stopped during the two years I was in India almost altogether because if I mention it, I had a hundred incredibly nasty anti-Muslim Hindu bigots in my mentions. Right. And it was just as, you know, it was like opening a sewer every time. And I feel, I felt like, you know, now the priority is defending Muslims as fellow citizens, as fellow human beings. And I don't, you know, this is not, for me, I don't feel comfortable talking so much about Islam. But then I went right back to it when I left India. I don't know how you feel about that, that line of thought that since Trump's election, we need to move to um, talking about the far right and white nationalism. I guess that's not really relevant to you because your story and your expertise is about Ahmadiyya and about apostasy from Islam and about doubts within Islam. So maybe this is just a completely nonsense, irrelevant question. And if you decide to drop it. it, It's still relevant. And I I have some comments on that. One is this this topic comes up a lot. And I I know that a lot of ex-Muslim activists across the spectrum, you know, from diplomat to firebrand, recognize that if we see our content being co-opted by, let's say, the far right or white nationalists or bigots, um, we have a responsibility to to, to try to uh, reject that, to try to clean that up or disavow those kind of associations. And those of us who have the ability to, to maybe craft our things a little bit carefully so that there's poison pills in, in say, an essay where the, you know, the far right wouldn't want to use it or reference mm. it. Um, then that then that's wise. At the same time, one of the problems we have is that we now live in a global society. So you could have a local situation where, let's say, somewhere in the Middle East, let's say Iran or Saudi Arabia, you have an ex-Muslim atheist living in fear and secret, and they have things to say. They want to speak out about the religion. 
they want to be on social media and share what they know. And they're surrounded by people who, if they knew their true beliefs, um, would put them in harm. And yet at the same time, if they're on social media that's global, that can show up somewhere in India where the Hindutva are are really strong and can co-opt it a different way. Mm. So we have local realities, but we also have sort of this global conveyance of information. And so it's hard to be local and global at the same time. Mm. And and that's the the crux of the problem we face. Because if we're saying, let's take the lowest common denominator um, and go and, and think of global concerns only, then uh, we end up um, disenfranchising the people who are minorities and suffering in, in their own little pockets. So the, I, I don't think that's, you know, staying silent on this issue, I don't think that's a, a, an option either. Mm, mm. Yeah, um, I, I don't either. I just, I, I thought it was just worth raising that point because it comes up so often, but I take your point it completely. Does. It's really individual situations can differ so much that we just have to keep applying consistent liberal principles across the board. Right. And, and talk responsibly. Maybe there are things um, in how we speak that need to be cleaned up or when we recognize they're getting co-opted a certain way, adjust how we do some messaging to try to make sure that those words and that message isn't abused. Now, I've heard some ex-Muslims say, you know, we're the only minority that seems to be asked to be more mindful about the persecution of our oppressors than any other minority. Mm, mm. And I don't, I don't mean to say that, you know, all Muslims are oppressors of ex-Muslims. That's not what mm. I'm saying. But a lot of ex-Muslims are closeted and in different parts of the world in physical harm because of conservative, con- conservatism uh, amongst Muslims who believe this is how they need to treat of people who apostatize. So that has to be kept in view as well. Yes. And in my own case, with the Amadi uh, upbringing, this is a community that in most of the ex-Muslim uh, discourse isn't really touched upon. A lot of former Amadis are, are closeted and they just sort of ghost away because the community is so tight-knit. The social cost of leaving or leaving overtly and authentically is so high that you don't often hear about it. Mm -hmm. And so these people need a voice. We need more former Amethys speaking up and feeling like it's safe to speak up. But if people don't even know that that reality exists and think that we must see everything through the dangers of white nationalism, uh, we'll, we'll we'll, we'll never recognize that there's a diversity of pain uh, there's a diversity of voices and subjects that need to be dealt with. So when you say the suffering, so I know the Ahmadis are nonviolent, but you're talking about ostracism from the family, I assume. Right. From the right. community. I mean, you have, from the community, uh, I, I, I sometimes half jokingly, half seriously refer to Ahmadis as a community where you have three degrees of separation instead of the typical six around the world. And everybody sort of knows everybody you're expected to marry into the community. And if you don't, then it looks bad on your family. If you've got other siblings who want to marry in the community, now it becomes problematic for them. Think of sort of, you know, Victorian era, you know, family reputation, that sort of thing. That's a lot of pressure uh, to grow up with. 
In addition, you have very strict rules where Amadi Muslim women are not even allowed to marry a Muslim man from a different denomination of Islam, mm. unless they get permission from their their caliph. And that rarely happens. Or if the, typically they, they are told, you have to get that guy to convert. And to make sure that conversion is sincere, he has to convert for two years before you're allowed to get married. So they put all these roadblocks in the way. And a lot of Amadi Muslim women, because there's no dating, there's a lot of segregation, even weddings are segregated, family gatherings, when you have more than just aunts, uncles, and cousins, um, but you have friends over, that's segregated. Social functions, even university groups of Amadi Muslim students, are there's a separate women's group and a men's group. Like everything down the line, it's like Taliban level segregation in how you live your life. So when you have that, and you have Amadi Muslim women who also have this restriction, you know, that Sunni Muslim guy in school that you got to know, well, sorry, you can't really marry him. So these women, a lot of them are having trouble finding a suitor to get married to. And a lot of these women might have people that they know in their 20s they could have gotten married to, they could have started families, but they don't. And then you have women who are passing their childbearing years waiting for an Amadi Muslim marriage opportunity, and it never happens, and their dreams of motherhood, you know, gone. And there's all kinds of misery inflicted at the social level that most people don't even realize. Some of it common to a lot of Muslims, some of it unique to Amadis, and this stuff never gets talked about. Is that equally true of of men and women? So just to compare with uh, Zoroastrianism for a moment, it's considered Mm -hmm. patrilineal. So, and you cannot convert under any circumstances. I mean, at least this is the strict interpretation, which I think most Indian Parsis adhere to. In Iran, they're a little more uh, loose, but it's patrilineal. So I'm Zoroastrian because my father was Zoroastrian. But Mm. if if a man marries a non-Parsi, his children are still Parsi. But if a woman marries a non-Parsi, she is no longer Parsi. And non-Parsis are not permitted to even enter the temples or take part in ceremonies. Um, Zoroastrianism is a very closed religion. And that, you can imagine, causes a great deal of misery. And there's actually not right. even an option for the man to convert. So with the Amadis, what happens with the men is uh, Amadi Muslim men are allowed to marry a Sunni Muslim girl and she doesn't, she's not forced to convert. So what ends up happening is a lot of Amadi men might meet somebody on their own. And plus, they're allowed to, to marry Christians and Jews because they're people of the book, because that's in the uh. Quran. So you have so many Amadi Muslim men, quote unquote, marrying outside the community, which is also internally referred to as just the Jamaat. So they're marrying outside the Jamaat, and that's creating this huge imbalance. And a lot of women are not able to find men to marry, but they're also blocked from being able to look on their own. Mm. And then there's not there's not even opportunities to mix when they're teenagers or in their 20s to be like, oh, okay, I, I know, I like this person. So they don't even have that opportunity. So what that does, and, and it almost seems like it's by design, you have a lot of young Muslim, Amity Muslim women who might not even be that religious, but they've got to show up at the religious competitions, volunteering in the community because they've got to catch the eye of some auntie who might have a son 
or a nephew or what have you. And so a lot of these people are putting on a show in virtue signaling just so they can get noticed for marriage. And then the Amity Muslim community ends up getting a higher pool of volunteers handling symposiums or publishing articles and books, uh, manning volunteer stalls and outreach programs and things like that, because a lot of people feel like this is the only way for them to express themselves. Otherwise, they're stuck and their own lives are on hold. Mm. So it's a very, I mean, I feel the Ahmadis in a sense are like the Jehovah's Witnesses of Islam. Very much socially. Mm. And could you tell me about attitudes towards homosexuality are also quite conservative in the Amity community, right? They are. So the Amities will uh, suggest, well, they'll come out and say, look, it's an abomination. God does not allow it. They will try to be softer by saying, you know, we're not saying that you must persecute people that are homosexual. You know, they've met, there's mixed messages about, you know, whether you can be their friends. Um, but they believe that homosexuality is a, a lifestyle choice and that because homosexuality is being more accepted in the West, more people are becoming homosexuals and that it can rub off on you uh, like, a, like a fashion uh, trend. Mm. And so there's a lot of paranoia about that. But one of the things I wrote in my article about the Ahmadiyya beliefs and practices is how at one of these religious camps, they're often like one to three day camps where there's a lot of competitions for recitation of the Quran or giving a speech and so forth. And in one of them, they've got predefined speech topics. And uh, the one of them was about, this was for, for the women's uh, competition. It was a loaded title about how homosexuality is an ill of our time and why it must be combated or something like that. So there's no opportunity for these people to give a speech that has a different conclusion or sort of explores a different viewpoint. It's here's the conclusion. This is the topic. It's a loaded conclusion. And now backfill it with a good speech. So this is how that, you know, everybody is fit into this mold of, of groupthink and indoctrination. Mm. So I, I think the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about was the tablik, as you call it, or dawah, the conversions. Right. So in your video, at one point you mentioned, or it might have been in an interview, actually, I think it might have been in your interview on secular jihadists, which I'll link to, you said that you had goals. At, um, you were asked if you could bring in Every Amity was was told, okay, over the next whatever period it was, bring in one new Amity. And one of the people right. there yeah. said, well, I already have because my wife is pregnant, so I'm giving birth to one. Um, so he was let right. off the hook. That that sounds very like the Jehovah's Witnesses to me, this emphasis on winning new converts. So to, to be fair that person wasn't let off the hook in that, you know, if you don't bring in a convert, there's some consequence. But the idea was, you know, there was a spirit of, hey, let's spread the message, let's get converts, and here's an individual goal. And if you haven't hit that, you know, one person a year or two people a year or whatever it was at the time, then that means maybe you need some coaching on how to bring up the topic of religion at your workplace or your school or with your friends or what, what have you. And so 
it's a little bit of a relief for somebody to think, oh, okay, well, you know, and, and I think they were saying it half jokingly because the idea was to really get external converts. But my point of mentioning that was that it really shows that children are seen as a form of ownership. It's just assumed if you're an Amity and you have an Amity child, well, you have a child, they're going to be Amity. Like it's locked in, it's a done deal. And and that sort of assumptive predestination for the child is, I find, very mm. troubling. I was really, I, I teared up when I was watching your video and I got to the part where you were quoting the famous quote from Khalil Gibran, um, which I'll actually link to mm. my favorite rendition of that, if I can find it in the show notes, which is Sweet Honey in the Rock d- made a song out of this. They are a... Um, okay. As um, a spirituals, gospel music inspired black women's group, I think from the 80s. I actually saw them live in St. Paul in about 1990 or something. And I remember them performing Mm. this song, and our children are not our children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. I can't even even say it without tearing up. I can't actually even quote it. Those are such beautiful words. Amazing. They come through you, but they do not... They are not, they do not belong to you. You can strive to be like them, but you cannot make them like you. It's just, oh, sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm having like a moment of cheerfulness. It's so um, profound. And, you know, I, I find that Khalil Gibran's writings had more wisdom than a lot of li- religious mm, literature mm. out there. Um, I have to confess, I have never read The Prophet, but I, have, I just know that part. So maybe I should read mm. it. So one of the things that I have noticed about Amadis is there is this elision between, there is this whole question of are Amadis Muslims or not? And so I don't want to get into the theology of that. As far as I'm concerned, anybody who wants to call themselves Muslim should call themselves Muslim. And I think it's very discriminatory and even dangerous that in Pakistan you have to write on your passport passport that you're Amity. You can't just put Muslim. And I have seen footage of people of, you know, mobs destroying Amity mosques and things like that. It's terrifying. So I feel that they are, you are a vulnerable minority group in many places. Yeah, the Amity's yeah. are. But also in the West, there haven't been so many, so many terrorist attacks in Europe over the past year or two. But during the kind of height of it in 2000 and I guess 14, 15, when there, was, when there was a sort of spurt of attacks, every time after the attacks, there would be a group of what the media always described as Muslims going out and preaching a nonviolent doctrine and speaking out very strongly against violence. And that was always used as a way of say of that was used by the media and by many of my fellow people on the left as kind of proof that Islam is fundamentally nonviolent. While of course I think most Muslims are not violent, I think this representation is false. And what they never said was that these groups were Amity groups. And almost right. invariably they were Amity groups. And I think D- Douglas Murray yes, wrote about, I was this, about and to, I commented I was on his about article. To say, um, I don't remember which article, but maybe we can find it later and add it to the show notes. But yes, I remember specifically right. that he did a kind of 
identifying of the different groups. And that was when I first became aware of that. And there's something very weird about it. There's also, there's a, I think a quite famous Amity apologist. I think it might be the guy who calls himself Muslim IQ. Oh, right. Kasim Rashid, Rashid, who's running for state Senate right. in Virginia Is he now. Amity? Am I remembering correctly? He is, yeah. He, uh, I'm not sure if he still is, but for several years, he was an official spokesman for the Amity right. Muslim community. So he is always talking about, he is, he's always putting things in an extremely, extremely pro-Muslim way. Even, right. you know, after uh, he does the kinds of things that really annoy me, like after a terrorist attack, he will say, the real danger is that people will become bigoted against Muslims. And I agree that is also a danger. A scapegoating is a, right. is a real and present danger, and we have to be very, very vigilant. Right. But at this, and he says, you know, Islam is absolutely against violence. It's part of our beliefs that we do not practice violence, etc., that we um, explicitly do not endorse violence. And when he says all of that, he's talking about Ahmadiyya. He's not talking about Islam in general, but he never exactly. mentions the fact that he's Ahmadi. He never mentions the fact that most other Muslims, or, or maybe not most Muslim people, I don't know, but most other Muslim groups, sects, officially don't consider him to be Muslim. Right. There's something very hypocritical about that. He rubs a, he, he rubs a lot of people the wrong way um, for this. And uh, one of the things that you'll notice is that you'll hardly see ex-Muslims on his Twitter thread disagreeing with him because they generally get blocked. Mm. And a lot of people have tried to challenge him on, you know, the the community's effectively homophobia and the belief that, you know, homosexuality is an abomination. And if we lived in a country that was predominantly Ahmadi Muslims, the right for gay marriage or even a gay dating site online, that wouldn't exist. Mm. But these kinds of comments he will immediately block people. And I wrote a blog post about two, maybe three years ago about how I was blocked by mm. him. And it was such an innocent conversation where I'm critiquing something. Now, I recognize if you've got 200,000 Twitter followers having to respond to so many people who are critiquing you or taking a different view than you, that can be time consuming. And so maybe his way of dealing with it is just blocking. Mm. But it's interesting that you don't really see dissenting opinions on his on his on his Twitter. I just feel there's something disingenuous or dishonest about the fact that he's not really giving you the full information. That if you're reading right. his threads or also in the BBC News, you you think he's representing yes. Islam generally, and he's representing a view of about one percent of the Muslim right. population worldwide, who the other ninety nine yeah. percent. Yeah, then the other 99% don't even really consider as Exactly Muslim. the same thing happens with the BBC coverage. Although in the case of the BBC, I think they just genuinely don't know. But, you know, they you assume that they mean Muslims in general, but almost always it's an Amity group that they are talking about. And I can break it down a little bit why this happens. Amity Muslims know that a lot of the other 99% are starting to get a bit disillusioned in the West because they've got more humanistic values they see from Western enlightenment. They've grown up with those. And it's harder to reconcile with the more authentic Islamic 
source material and history that they've grown up with. And so if Amadi Muslims de-emphasize the word Amadi and try to speak for all Muslims, the thought process in their outreach and their dawah tabliq is maybe these other Muslims will see that we Amadis are taking leadership and defending Islam, so these other Sunnis and Shias will maybe come over and convert to Amadi Islam. So a lot of it comes back to seeking conversions. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I do find it kind of annoying. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> it is. I, I do too, because it gives air cover to the other mainstream Islamic beliefs that don't hold the same views as Amadis. And so the the general population is left with this misnomer about the Islam that they are interested in or concerned with and think that that 1% represents the vast majority of Islam when mm. it doesn't. And Amadis purposely create this, this confusion. And so I, I think, in a sense, even though the Amadis are the peaceful Muslims, they give air cover to all of the other forms of Islam that we don't talk about as much because oftentimes the, the Western media wants a feel-good story about Islam, and they just have to go to the Amadis to get it. And they think that this is what Islam is and this is what Muslims are in the West when we're really talking about 1% of the Muslim population. Yeah, I think there are a couple of problems that feed into this or worsen it that are, have nothing to do with the Ahmadis specifically. One is that people have this knee-jerk response that we must respect religion. It's a religion, so it must kind of be good. And right. I, do, I don't call myself an atheist. I'm kind of... I'm pretty doubtfully agnostic and non, I'm not reverential in any way or devout, but mm. I follow Zoroastrianism and I go to the Agyari when I'm in India. And I totally understand this sense of community because I, I, I lived in the, in the Parsi community when I was in Bombay. I lived actually in the, in the Parsi Bagh. And that feeling of history connection is really important to me, even though it's a very irrational thing. It's important to me. And I have a feeling being at the Aguiari that I don't have anywhere else. That is the closest I get to feeling spiritual. And for that, I need to be okay. at the Aguiari in front of the fire. But I don't think that this feeling that religions need to somehow be respected because they are religions or because people believe in them or um, because it would be nice if they were true. Um, if that were the case, then we should also respect homeopathy, which I think is the most right. pernicious bullshit. So I, I think there's that. So we need to kind of find a way to portray Islam as a nicer religion. And I think Islam is right now the biggest, biggest problem among religions. That's not always historically right. been the case, but right now, Agreed. and not everywhere in the world. In India, Hinduism is a much greater problem. Absolutely. But I think that this sort of knee-jerk thing of religions are basically a nice thing. So we have to kind of find the nice side of it is not helpful. And the other thing right. I think is not helpful is it was very understandable in in. 1914, how old am I? Um, in 2014, 2015, when all of the bombings were happening. But I think it's 
we have an overemphasis on terrorism. And terrorism is a really rare event. And this is true in India too. People are incredibly focused on terrorism. And even though the numbers might be quite large, like 2,000 people died, what is the population of India again? You know, the actual rarity of the event is small. And of course, that's the point of terrorism, to make you disproportionately afraid. And it's very effective at that. But fear is a really bad counselor, and it leads people to become very panicked, very racist. People shift over. Who are People who are going in that direction anyway can get nudged very quickly over towards the far right, you know, when bombings right. occur, because it is terrifying and horrible. And also... It makes us often take less seriously more sort of widespread religious problems. Like, for example, well, the Amadeus are peaceful and nonviolent, and therefore there's nothing wrong with Amadeus, which is a very short title. Like, as if terrorism is the only thing to critique about Islam. And if a group is peaceful and not creating terrorist um, incidents, then we'll just give them a pass on mm. everything else. Mm. And, and, and that's the, that's what I see as problematic. And, and that's why I, like, I, I refuse to accept that as some kind of benchmark of who can speak up and yeah, who can't. I, I also, even if we look at Hinduism, although there has been some Hindu terrorism now in India, there's no real incitement, strong incitement to violence within the religion itself, but you have the caste system you know, which has nothing to do with violence or terrorism, but what could be worse? So it's it's really clear that violence and terrorism are not the the only things to be concerned about. And in fact, maybe we shouldn't be overly concerned about them. Right. Especially in the Amity context. And if, if, if you're curious, I can get into why I think they don't have the, the, the sort of militancy problem that other forms of Islam lend themselves a bit more to. Yes, please do. Well, in a nutshell, you have the source texts of Islam that have been around, you know, a couple of centuries, like other than the Quran, some of the Hadith and the early bio of Muhammad, that showed up a century or two centuries later. And then there's all kinds of writing from other saintly figures in Islam after that over the centuries. And a lot of that early source material does lend itself to interpretations that are going to create havoc violence, terrorism, uh, and you can choose to interpret things in a different way, which which doesn't, but the material does lend itself to a lot of different interpretations. What Amadeus did is that when their founder came along, he wrote 80-something books, and a lot of Amadeus are so focused on, hey, his books explain the Quran, his uh, khulafa that have succeeded him as leaders of the community their weekly sermons explain what the faithful are supposed to do. And if he says the Quranic verse here, the Arabic really means this, or this is how to take it, then his mm, word is gold. Mm. And so when you, when you set that up, yeah, it, it, it's, it's completely curated. So you're in this walled garden of interpretation. And so when they basically admirably cut off violent jihad, uh, aggressive jihad, for example. I mean, they still say, look, if you're being attacked, obviously you have to be able to defend yourself. So they, they're not canceling that. So, but anything sort of violent terrorist, like uh, that's expansionary um, or on, on the offense on, you know, that's not part of defense, 
they've they've cut that off admirably. So what ends up happening is you have this whole community that if they identify as Amity, of course they're not going to resort to any of that. And that actually begs the question, why didn't the original message of Islam, if it was true, you know, according to Muslims, God, Muhammad, could have put in some of those safeguards and unambiguous language that would have prevented all of this mess over the last Mm -hmm. 1,400 years. But he didn't. Yeah, it's a it's a huge problem that I always have dealing um, dealing actually with anti-Muslim bigots, is that they point to the Quran and they say here it says this abominable thing, and right. therefore I hate Muslims because look this is what they follow, you know it's right here in the book, and of course between the book and the person are many layers of yes either not knowing the passage because. Uh, many many Muslims don't speak Arabic, and you know my Indian friend who is Muslim told me that they had learnt it uh, phonetically, and that he had never read yeah. the Quran in a translation that he understood. So of course he picked up passages here and there, but he never actually read the thing. He mm. just read it in Arabic, which he didn't understand. And so they may not know the passage. If they do know it, they may just kind of disregard it or just pay it like lip service, but really in their own life, it doesn't have any influence on their ethics and behavior. Because as Ali Rizvi always says, people are better, or I think it's his wife who says that, yes, his wife, people are better than their religions. Yeah. The other layer as part of that is that oftentimes these translations kind of whitewash Mm. what's in the Arabic. So people think, hey, I'm reading the Quran, seems Mm. pretty good. Or even if the translation is truer to the Arabic, and it seems like, whoa, that's a little bit startling. There might be a commentary associated with it, if you have a, not just a literal translation, but commentary, which is often the case, especially for Amadis. And you look at the commentary, and then there'll be like this long, you know, several paragraphs explaining one word or two word to try to then change the meaning of of the surface text. And then Amadis will be like, oh, okay, well, and even other Muslims will be like, okay, some learned person explained that this is how we take it. And so if they they wanted to have more of a peaceful twist to it, they could through those other layers. So like you said, there's there's a lot of layers there between the text, the, the raw Arabic text and, and the person. I think for a lot of people also, many people are personally devout, but they just take the bits that are relevant to them. You know, some passage about crucifying people yeah. and cutting off their hands and feet is just not relevant to their experience at all. Whereas going to mosque, wearing hijab or not wearing hijab or whatever, not eating pork, not drinking alcohol, giving to charity, all those things may be relevant to them. And they may practice them, but these kind of bits of people riding across the desert, beheading people and whatever, is just, you know, it doesn't have a direct relevance to their experience. They're not about to be crucifying anybody anytime soon. So I think that so I really hate it when people try to understand people by looking at a holy text that is very reductionist. Yeah. It's too simplistic. Um, but also yeah. the problem is, as Sam Harris points out, the text is there. So those words are there. And even if everybody becomes incredibly peaceful, everyone converts to Amadea, which still <laughs> leaves you with some problems, but at least the violence problems problem is that averted, that text is still there and somebody could still come along and say, some charismatic person would come along and say, look what it says exactly here in the text. 
Let's go exactly right. by that. And even for Amethyst, you, you, even for Amethyst, they're not going to expunge verses that talk about mm. crucifixion. You know, they'll say, well, if the time and the place is right and it's needed, then we have that option. But right now they're not in a position of power or running a country where, you know, that's even going to be entertained. So it just gets sort of set aside. But the text, like you said, it will always be there. Mm. So it's, it's a time bomb, potentially. I, I, I yeah, I often think of, you know, let's think of a World War Three scenario. A lot of civilization is kind of mapped out. We're sort of like, you know, in the walking dead sort of scenario. And some kid finds a copy of the Quran in somebody's attic and opens it up and everybody says, oh, maybe we should follow this. The whole problems would start all over again. And that's why I think as long as the text exists, now it should in museums and for archiving, but as long as it exists and it hasn't been thoroughly debunked, um, I, I think we run the, the risk of the book, the text is always there for people to pick it up and take a view of it, which is uh, not necessarily conducive to human flourishing. I want to ask you about your own experiences of apostasy. And since people seem to my feedback I got is people like it when I <laughs> feed in little comparisons to Zoroastrianism because few people know about it. I will okay. because we don't really have a concept of apostasy, but we do okay. have this uh, very strong patrilineal thing. If you marry out, you've left the faith. Certainly mm. a friend of mine who is, we have a hereditary priesthood. We have a priest caste in Zoroastrianism. And... Um, a friend of mine who is a very outspoken atheist, but because he's from a priestly family, he has inherited priesthood status. And our people are always asking him if he will come and do services at the Agyari. Because being a priest, is, uh, being a Zoroastrian priest is not that much fun, to be frank. And so it's not mm. a very popular, it's, it's not a very popular career choice. And um, Parsi is a very, very well-educated, modern, sort of forward-looking. We are not that devout as a community. And okay. people are always asking him, please, we really need a priest. Can you come and do the service? Even though he tells them, I'm an atheist. And they're like, well, we don't care. <laughs> you are, you know, priest right. caste, come and do the service. <laughs> not the service, but yeah. um, I, I, I don't know how that... And, yeah, do the jashans and stuff. We don't really have a kind of regular service, but the equivalents that we have. So what, what was your personal experience leaving the faith? What has your experience been from your family and friends and the Amadea community? What has the response been to your video? So my, my, own, my own family knew a long time ago, because I, I was devout um, in my youth, as a young adult, and then I started questioning because I wanted to be able to preach the message better. And I looked at the Quran and I looked at a lot of verses where there's a lot of inequality towards women. And I tried to grok the apologetics and they just didn't sit well with me. And because my family saw that I was more devout than them and that I really tried, you know, they were sad when I said, look, I, I don't believe in this. And I just sort of dropped it. I stopped going to the mosque. I stopped doing the Islamic prayers and fasting and things like that. But they they at least understood that, you know, I did the work. And they were hoping that the religious leadership in the community would answer the questions that I had actually compiled into a book. And I actually 
relay this story in a blog post called The Things We Think on my website. And there's a download of that book mm. that I wrote. And did, um, did you PDF. write that it's about 180 um, pages. pseudonymously or under your own name? No, I wrote it under my own name. And my, my original plan was only to give it out to the religious leadership in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Canada, as well as about 20, 25 friends, mostly local, because I wanted to start dialogue. I, you know, I was so innocent. I was like, are anybody, is anybody else thinking these thoughts, these questions, these doubts? Is I wanted to ask my peers, like, why doesn't this bother mm -hmm. you? Have you thought about this? And so I printed all these spiral bound copies of the book and I had them in a box. And when the religious leadership found out about it, they said to me, um, one person that I worked with very closely as a volunteer, he said to me, I thought you were just going to give us a copy because I'd already given out three or four copies. And a couple of people I had given it out to, I think it was just such a hot potato for them. They immediately passed it on to the religious leadership after reading a few mm. pages. I mean, that's, that's how much sort of mind share and fear people have of, of questioning or thinking outside mm. the mold. So when the religious leadership found out, I said, well, yeah, I'm going to give you a copy too. When I next happened to go up to where the headquarters of the community is, I was going to drop off my copy. I'm just dropping off the other copies because I want to, I want to get some discussion going. And they were like, no, 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 no. You're supposed to only give us a copy and we will give you the answer. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, that is quite mm. controlling. But I also knew, I, I guess I was politically astute enough to, to think if I don't follow what they're saying, then this whole thing, this whole episode is going to get spun as Sohel is being disrespectful of the community. He's not following orders and people won't think about what I wrote in the book. Instead, the story will be how I was being disrespectful and unruly and uncooperative and things like that. So I decided, okay, I'm going to give them the list of the people I plan to distribute it to, who I distributed it to. I'm going to recall the copies that I had given to other people and because they asked me to, and they would have sole possession uh, of, the, of the printed copies. And little did I know that my parents actually kept a couple of copies because they wanted to pass them out to religious friends to see if they could answer them. I think they knew in the back of their minds there might be a long wait getting answers officially from the community. So... I no longer had physical copies, and I thought, at least this way, now the story, the onus is on them to give me official answers in writing to my book. And 20 years later, they still hadn't done that. And so I decided when I was coming out that I would tell this story, and I, I've given them enough time now that I would actually publish this book, even though I think some of the things that I wrote, some of the objections I had, I might've posed them a bit simplistically. I've got some great arguments in there, maybe some that are not so great, you know, in hindsight, but I wanted to publish it as is for people to see what it was that stumped the community mm. so many years mm. ago, at least well, the leadership. Well, you were very young when you wrote that book. You I were was, 19, yeah. am I right? And, and I, I spent a few, uh, yeah, I, and I spent a few years kind of refining it, but um, yeah, because I was religious at a, at a young age. And so I, I was, it was emotionally daunting for me to sort of stand up to the community. I just tell you, get off my lawn? Yeah. Okay, carry on. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was emotionally daunting. Um, so 
Yeah, that was that was pretty much the story. And then I I went on with my own life. And in the video, I talk about, you know, kind of coming back to the community for a while because I felt like I'm the only one. I'm alone. Uh, how, you know, how am I even going to meet somebody to get married to? Because you grow up almost with a learned helplessness. helplessness. If you are a guy, you're taught if you see somebody that you might even find attractive or even just women in general, you don't look them in the eye hoping, you know, somebody's going to smile at you. Instead, you cast your eyes down. And so you've got all these learned behaviors and you realize, wow, I am really helpless. And so you think, you know, maybe I'll just put my doubts aside. I won't think about it. Most people seem to not care about the theology. They just live their lives People get married in the community. They have kids. They, they get on with their lives. And so I tried, you know, I, I, I tried to fit back into that mold, but that didn't last for more than a few years. And then I decided, you know, no more pretending, no more cognitive dissonance. I need to be completely true and authentic to myself. But I focused on other areas of my life. And so I wasn't really, you know, I'd go to community weddings here and there, but it was awkward because people would be like, oh, you should come to this event. And hey, we didn't see you at that. And you're always going through life as if you're the, the bad Muslim or the lazy Muslim or the deficient Muslim. And after a while, that just sort of, that, that, that wears you down. Because if you're a person that values authenticity and you've got very solid reasons for why you don't participate in these things, but you're effectively keeping it a secret and just muting yourself, that, that's not really a way to live. And so when I found the ex-Muslims of North America in 2015, and I started connecting with community and getting involved, that reawakened that activist part of me that said, you know, it's not, it's not sufficient for me to just kind of coast through life trying to appease everybody and not rock the boat. That's not a, I'm not actually living doing that. I need to speak my truth. And, and once I did, you know, family is like, look, we respect that you have a choice in life to, you know, follow your own religious path or no religion. But they really didn't like the idea of me speaking out about it. But I don't think they have a choice. I mean, that is, this is my mission. In some ways, I feel like it's a bit of a calling because of my unique history and looking at the theology and seeing things over so many years there is so much that I can write, share, and even now put on video that will help so many other people who are questioning not waste a decade of their lives in no man's land, sort of, you know, neither here nor there, but it'll give them some encouragement that there are other people like them. There are good reasons to be able to question this theology and to stand your ground to be authentic. Yes, I have mentioned this in other podcasts, but I have an ex-Muslim friend, one of my best friends, Bangladeshi. And he told me that he recently read Ali Rizvi's The Atheist Muslim, which I recommended to him. And he said, wow, I wish I had read that many years ago because it took me 10 years to leave Islam. You know, he left in yeah. gradual stages, began with a few doubts here and there. And then, you know, eventually his doubts became too strong to ignore and he left. He said, if I had read The Atheist Muslim back then, right at the beginning, I might have left right away. Yeah. Ali's book is wonderful. It's a, it's yes, a, it's a absolutely. great recommendation. And of course, Ali was also on this podcast. I wonder if I could, if we could move on to, you talk about, you say at the end of your video, your long coming out video, which I highly recommend to everybody. You say that 
you anticipate that over the next few years, you are going to be dealing with helping people, Muslims and Ahmadis in particular, who have doubts, um, to explore those doubts. Um, and you have an expertise which you're going to use to help other people know that they are not alone. And right. so your focus is going to be on ex-Muslim activism. And But what you would like to do in the longer term is move on from that and create a new kind of community. You have this vision at the end of the book where you say, um, you would like to see us reorganize into what you call philosophy communities that are not centered on right. supernatural belief, but centered around prescriptive best practices. It really reminded me of Oroville, where I'm actually going in October, um, which I think is a, a community of this kind. There are communities like this springing up. I think, you know, there's the Ethical Society. Um, there's also, in, in a different form, the School of Life holds conferences. And so I, I think these things are sort of springing up. And the unique angle that I want to bring to this is that we don't have to think the way old religions did, where one size fits all. What we really do is we can have different communities that have different values, different things that they emphasize. Some are very prescriptive because some people kind of like that. Some are very light touch and different things will resonate with different people. And I think because there'll be a need and a desire for many of such communities, each of these communities need not reinvent the world, the, the, the wheel in, in terms of how they structure their constitution, how they get volunteers, how they organize, how they register. A lot of these things can be sort of centralized in a pool of best practices for how to organize. Or maybe there's, you know, the community eventually splits because there's a couple of diverging opinions. How do you do that gracefully? You know, religions have generally fought and shed blood over that kind of stuff. How do we how do we plan for some of those divergences in a very amicable way? Um, or maybe some some branches diverge and then later they have a dwindling membership and there's no really reason for them to be off on their own and we can collapse them back into sort of the main branch. Because these aren't religions, there's no God-given truth, we can freely do these sort of things. And a lot of these communities will have those same kind of needs. And instead of the, all of them reinventing it for themselves, we can create a federation, a, a sort of meta structure that, that doesn't get prescriptive about the things that the communities will do, but just helps these communities form, birth, um, amicably, uh, maybe diverge into parts or collapse back together. And maybe there'll be some common elements where these communities recognize that they're, you know, and they clearly state to all their, the people who choose to join them that we're not the end all be all truth. There's nothing supernatural here. We're just a community of people who want to share some values because that seemed to resonate with a lot of people in the days of religion. It was just all this other baggage that we didn't like. And so maybe we can take what religion has co-opted, just the good parts in terms of community, exhortation, uh, rituals for life's milestones, things that humans just gravitate towards and put them in a 
in a packaging that isn't threatening the way most of us who have left religion have an aversion to religion. Um, so I'm very intrigued by this, and I um, have a plan not completely fully committed to, but I am planning to go to Oroville for a longer time and ex experience, partly because I'm very curious about how that kind of community plays out in real life. But I have to say that mm. although, you know, um, I like you so much and I have no bad feelings about you, I had a slightly queasy feeling when I got to the end of the video and you were talking about the philosophy communities because I really do think that communities, even if they are not based around religion, are very double-edged sword that once you have prescriptions for behavior, um, then you have people can get shut out of communities. They can be ostracized. Also, it can be difficult to go against the, the orthodox. Orthodoxies can develop and right. charismatic leaders can develop and abuse their power. I, so I right. think that there are I can see why people enjoy communities, and and I did too. Although even the Parsi community has a has its double edged uh, aspects. Yeah, you can you can definitely get a warm fuzzy feeling from the community, but you have to play by its rules. And in the end, I preferred my individual Parsi friends to the community thing because. Right. The community is just once you has a set of round holes, and if you're a square peg, you'd better just kind of like um, have the have the edges sheared off so you can fit in them. Um, right. And I've thought about a lot of these dangers over the years, and a lot of people that I've talked to this about will raise objections like this or other objections, and then I'll usually have you know two hour long discussions talking through how we might be able to deal with those kinds of things to take the, take the good and protect ourselves from some of these downsides, mitigate against those sorts of things. And this is where I think instead of every community reinventing the wheel, some of these problems will be common to all of these different communities that take a different slant on things. So if a lot of, I think, smart minds knowing human history and how religions have faltered in these ways, get together and come up with some creative ways where we can enjoy the upside and really minimize or shut down the downsides that, you know, of the, of these double-edged swords, then I think all the communities can, can benefit from some of those things. And there'll be some communities that will be so light touch. This, this is not even a, mm. a problem. But there'll be some that people will gravitate toward, especially people who come out of very structured religions, or even there, there are some people who've never had religion, but they feel like their life, they couldn't generate the structure on their own. And they really crave that. And these are the kind of people that do convert to Islam, for example, mm -hmm. and maybe very conservative Christian sects. So there should be something for them to gravitate toward, but where we defang it, we declaw it from all these kinds of dangers. And we're not going to figure that out right away. I'm not going to figure that out on my own. I want people to get together. And even before these communities get off the ground, we're thinking about these problems and we're thinking about how we would mitigate that and have sort of these starting points for all these communities to adopt that 
help protect them from themselves and, and where they could I, go wrong. And maybe, maybe it won't work, but I think it's worth a try. I still have a lot of reservations. I think that um, the main problem is the all-encompassing side of community, that community is something mm. to structure your life. And I prefer to think of people, on the whole, I prefer to think of people creating bonds across interests. So for example, I am a total nerd and I'm really into Star Trek. So Star Trek is kind of a community, um, but, but nobody is right. using Star Trek to structure their whole life. Um, and right. there's, there's a kind of loose affiliation there, which is joining people, but it's not, it doesn't have this overarching structure. And the same with Argentine tango. I'm a real joiner of groups um, in that sense. But this is not quite the same thing as communities. And I think communities really do have this inbuilt weakness of sliding very quickly into um, something that is more totalitarian. So I'm a little suspicious of communities, actually, mm. personally. I mean, I mean, that's been my experience from religion. And at the same time, the plus side, especially growing up in the Amity community, I can understand how some of that tight-knitness um, felt mm, really, mm. really good. And that's why, you know, a lot of people, when they grow up with that, even though they struggle theologically, they don't leave because they, they mm. miss that. And so it may be that if you've never had it, it looks daunting, or mo maybe people would just form communities and bonds based on interest. But I think there's a lot of human history where we have had these sort of encompassing communities. And so I almost fear that it's a need that will gravitate toward anyway. And until we create a replacement and defang the kinds of communities that religion produced, we'll, we'll never have a good alternative. And I think a lot of people who kind of just hang around in religion, in religious communities for community, would actually leave and opt for something a lot less totalitarian if there was an option that gave them that warm and fuzzy. Well, I think many feeling. people already do sort of within the religion. And you mentioned this at some point. You say that um, those congregations can, as they stand, so transmute into humanist congregations. I thought that was a beautiful image. Right. And I think that that has happened with some Christian groups, certainly in the West. Um, it has. And even with yeah. some Muslim groups. I'd love to see that. Yeah. With the I think Muslims. it has happened with some Muslim groups, but it's not a mainstream thing within Iran, Iran Islam. Uh, but yeah, there is, there is a kind of, um, um, I, th I think that that is something that um, could happen, but I feel that I personally think that one of the important things is to stop, is not just not to defang the religion and create a, the same thing, but with a secular emphasis or humanist emphasis, but to place the focus of our lives elsewhere um, so that we are thinking more in terms of both the individual level and the universal level, the level of humankind, and we're less focused on our small groups. 
that's my right. my personal yeah. feeling. I think that can work. And even my idea might just be something that mm. is transitional. That, you know, if it if it gets off the ground, maybe it's something that lasts for 60 or 70 years and provides enough impetus for people to leave organized religions. And it's just a transitory phase. And then people move on to more individual and interest-based connections. It, it may That may be the case. But I think this will actually accelerate the exodus from traditional religious communities and religious practices and beliefs because there's something that looks a little bit familiar for people who would mm. otherwise miss that. So, Hale, first of all, is there anything that you feel it's important to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? Well, there's one topic we started with and we were talking about, you know, some of uh, my positions that, um, you know, you found kind of conservative and and you touched on, for example, adultery and, and how I characterized it. And I wanted to, to clarify something there. So my view on that is that, and I and you rightly pointed out that in my video, I, I refer to it as vile. For me, I look at that as simply a breaking of a trust. I'm not saying that people can't have open relationships or um, I'm not discounting that polyamory can work for people. In many ways, Islamic polygamy, for example, is like half of polyamory where only men get the benefit. And if we look at hunter-gatherer societies, you had polyamorous packs and those worked and people didn't worry about paternity. Mm, that's, Instead, um, a child that's had multiple fathers. White true. Um, sorry, I had two anthropologists debunking this idea okay. on an earlier podcast. Um, okay. Now, I got this from Sapien, so you're saying that that yes. characterization is incorrect? Um, I, I don't want to go into it in detail okay. because we talk about that in quite a lot of detail with um, Cody Moser and um, I'm getting old. Yes. Okay, I'm going to have to listen um, to that episode. So specifically, the distinction is that paternity um, didn't matter. Yeah, that's an inaccurate. So I think that that characterization is okay. inaccurate. Most anthropologists find that inaccurate. Okay. But polyamorous pacts did exist in hunter-gatherer mm, societies. Yeah, so I even think that's anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, what matters is uh, how you feel about it. Not, so not, what, not, what I was trying to get history. to, that, yeah. What I was trying to get to with that clarification is that relationships can take different forms, but adultery in the common you know, usage of the, of the word means you've made a commitment and you violated it. That's the issue that I take. And when you're dealing with relationships, sexuality, human beings, and human jealousy, if you make a commitment and then you break it, I think that's a pretty serious thing. If instead you are able to have a dialogue with your partner or partners and everybody's on the same page, then that, you know, how you structure that is up to you. Yes, I understand. I still take issue with the vile thing because I feel that, yes, I understand the breaking of trust, all of those other things that it's not a good thing. Um, but I feel it's a very common and very human failing. So I don't, it's not something that I personally would characterize as vile um, in the same way as rape is vile or uh, child abuse or, you know, many other things uh, are genuinely 
Right. I'll, I'll take your point there that those things are I just much, don't feel much that more serious. Level of moral condemnation. I feel like this is a slip up, maybe a serious slip up, but it's human frailty rather than something vile. So I guess I was, I was, I, 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 I just that word just stuck out to me. It was interesting. I understand. I understand. I, I think sometimes also how we frame things in the mind can drive our behaviors. And so if we view something very seriously, maybe even more seriously than it actually is because it's a human failing, we might strive to be better about keeping our trusts. And, and you know, that, that's a whole other topic. Um, but I, I think there's a few, there's a few potential layers there. But, but I take your point. Mm. Was there anything else you felt that people should know about Amadiat? Um, I think we covered a lot. If people are interested, I, I cover a lot of topics in an essay. Yes, um, I will link to Which I'm sure that, we'll yes. link to in the, in the show notes. Um, and how should people best support um, support what you're doing, um, support ex-Muslims? And how should people who are, how should non-Muslim people best support this kind of important work? Well, I think... Uh, they can start by not fearing talking about things. If they do it with compassion and clarify that they're not white nationalists or bigots, but they are taking issue with beliefs and they're supporting the right of people to disbelieve and live authentic lives, I think that's enough. And I think a lot of people who are not Muslim or who have never been Muslim are afraid of even talking about this stuff. And I think as long as we do it with compassion and remind people that we stand by the rights of Muslims as well. You know, I stand by their civil liberties. Um, if we remind people and contextualize that we're not attacking Muslims, but there's a, a separation of ideas and beliefs, and a lot of people tie those together, but we need to disentangle those. I think that's one of the uh, most important things that people can do. Of course, there are support communities. Uh, I'm very involved with the ex-Muslims of North America. They're always uh, trying to raise funds to help with ongoing costs. Um, and we, we run a lot of meetups. A lot of them, uh, well, all of them are actually in, in secret. Um, and helping spread the message among questioning Muslims that there are organizations for them, I think, uh, will help. Thank you. That's, that's wonderful. So, Hale, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Iona. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ariel, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. 
All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.